What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour on The Exchange. Big tech, ride-hailing, education, real estate, and now casinos are the latest industry to get crushed as the China crackdown intensifies. When will it end? Will it end? We'll explore what this all means for investors and tell you what Bridgewater's Ray Dalio says is the key thing to remember. And we all know the electric vehicle market is growing, but we don't know which company will necessarily win the race. We'll speak with one analyst giving us his top pick for the long run. Plus, CEOs of big businesses have not been shy about their supply chain struggles, but a lot of those companies have the money and the global reach to figure things out. What about the small businesses without all that leverage? We'll focus on them coming up. But we begin with this, uh, the markets this hour. Dom Chu is here with the numbers. The Dom. markets are green. They weren't that way to start. It was very mixed to start the day, Kelly. But we are seeing a more definitive move higher in this midday trade. Right now, the Dow Industrial is up roughly 200 points, or about half of 1%. The S&P 500, a similar percentage move, about two-thirds of 1%. And the NASDAQ composite up about half a percent as well. So up across the board. And by the way, just for context, the S&P 500 in your session highs right now, up 30 points is where we were. And then, of course, well, they switched it on me, but it would have, it would have shown down five was the low of the session so far. They got a little trigger happy in the control room over there. However, energy and oil right now is the kind of standout. If you look at the top 10, 20 stocks in the S&P, the vast majority of them are in the oil and gas patch. EOG Resources, Diamondback Energy, Marathon Oil on this kind of reflation recovery trade. Crude oil prices have been on the mend here over the course of the last couple of weeks. You can see here up another 3% today. There are some concerns about demand destruction. However, traders seem to be kind of working some of those things off right now. So watch the oil trade. And then the stock of the day, it's not in the S&P 500, not even close. It's Green Sky. If you've never heard of them, the stock's up 52% right now because they will be bought out by Goldman Sachs in a $2.2 billion all-stock deal. Why does Goldman want them? Because, Kelly, Green Sky is in the buy now, pay later space. They specialize in large-scale personal loans for things like home improvement, perhaps surgical procedures, that sort of thing. Goldman's getting in on that. It's going to add to that Marcus by Goldman Sachs lending platform, banking platform. So, again, Kelly, Green Sky up 52%. It's the latest acquisition target and buy now, pay later. I'll send things back over it's to you. It's a huge, you got to be careful messing with the control room, Dom. They can make life pretty miserable for you. Trigger happy. <laughs> Dom Chu with the open. It. Thank you very much. My next guest says the recent pullback is likely headed towards a full-blown market correction and that investors should take the next few weeks to reload investments in more cyclical areas of the market. Let's welcome in Steve Auth. He's the chief investment officer for equities at Federated Hermes. Steve, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. What, you know, are you a little, what's the, what's the conviction level in this correction? Let me, let me put it this way. Should people already be reloading on the reopening trade? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, our, our conviction level is higher, Kelly, in the year. And we actually raised our year-end number to 40. It's been 4,500, as you know, all year. Uh, we just raised it to 4,800. So we think the, the current correction probably has a little bit longer to go once people start to digest Fed tapering, which we think is coming. And, and I think the tax hikes, which the market is still kind of blowing off, um, I, I, we do think they're likely to come through. So 
you know, that'll take a little off the earnings numbers for the S&P. Um, I think the vulnerability in the market here, Kelly, is really the stocks that have held us up. I mean, you know, you look at all the stocks that we like here, they're down 10 to 20% yes. in the last week. So it, it, the market looks like it's hanging on, but it's largely because the large cap growth stocks, which have become the long duration plays in the market. So if we get a little pressure. Um, once the Fed starts tapering, that supply and demand imbalance in Treasury starts to come away. And I think that's when the event that everyone's been predicting all year begins to happen, which is you start seeing yields go to a more normal level, given what we're seeing in economic growth and inflation. So that's going to take a little bit of the air out of the um, the big cap tech names. I think you know their earnings power can carry them into next year. But that's where, if there is a correction at all, yeah, where we are. That's got to be where it's going to be. So let me rattle off, and we've been showing some of these as well. You have a lot of specific picks um, in financials. You like COF, travel. You like United. Uh, in yeah. uh, autos, you like GM. I want to focus in, though, on energy in particular. Not that you're the uh, the oil analyst here, Steve, but you guys do have a $90 oil call. We see this exacerbation in uh, global energy prices, whether oil or not gas. What would your advice be to investors here? Yeah, I think people have given up on this space. Uh, you know, it's been a terrible space to be. The standard line is that, you know, the only thing that corrects oil prices is high oil prices. Even the companies hate investing right now. Uh, we think the ESG factor is another factor to play here. The big call for us, Kelly, isn't so much $90, although when we put it out at the beginning of the year, I think people thought we were crazy. It's more <laughs> that next year we're going to stay up and elevate it. And I think the reason these stocks aren't being bought is because people think, well, even if it does, if we do see a short-term COVID-driven hike in prices, it'll all come back down. That's not what we're seeing. The oil companies are not reinvesting in this space. They're paying out the cash. We like Sean Berger here because they're a big player in squeezing more oil out of existing wells and a big player internationally, which is where the reaction is going to be, given you know where the current administration is on energy, on carbon energy. So um, we think there's a play here and people are really underexposed. It's also an inflation hedge. And we see that lasting longer than most people think as well. So and yeah, these stocks are some of the cheapest stocks in the market. You know, in a way, it's almost like everybody out there in the public listening should have exposure to these stocks because it would hedge them against the bills right. they're going to be paying, which are going higher and, and going to be a huge source of pain. I mean, imagine this is the worst case scenario for the Fed. They've always hated when energy spikes inflation because it's typically deflationary in the long run. It really saps. You know, it acts like a tax on consumer spending, however you want to describe it. It peaked, obviously, right before the Great Recession and then collapsed again. So from this point of view, it would make little sense for them to speed up a taper that is in response to something that's already going to have negative impact on the consumer and, and on a lot of businesses. Absolutely. They're, they're coming with taper. I, I, I'm completely unimpressed with the CPI print yesterday. If you look at the underlyings here, we're starting to see wage inflation in the areas the Fed cares about, which is lower income, uh, different demographic groups they're watching. Uh, you know, and then you've got rents starting to come up now. That's a big component of the CPI. Uh, you know, we've had the commodity push already. People are thinking commodities are going to come back down. We don't see it. I mean, we look at Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, we look at uh, in the chip space. These folks have order books now and contracts going out well into next year at high prices. So the rollback in prices there 
that's supposed to offset the rising wages and rents that are coming, that everyone can see coming, isn't going to happen. So we think inflation is going to be remaining elevated into next year, and people just don't have enough exposure to these inflation hedges in their portfolios right now. Very well explained. Steve, it's great to have you here, especially on a day like this. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Steve Auth of Federated Hermes. And one sector that's still trying to charge up despite everything we've been describing, high uh, fossil fuel prices, the big push by the administration towards clean energy and all the rest of it. Look at the EV stocks still lagging the market this year. Several key names. You know, the S&P is up about 20 percent. Tesla's down 5 percent. Fisker's down about 10 percent. And Lordstown's down about 65 percent. Lucid also declining since its SPAC debut in July. Uh, the stock heading lower since then. You can see the time frame there. The big spike earlier was when the SPAC acquisition was announced. It's seeing a nice pop today, though, after B of A Global Research called it the Tesla slash Ferrari of EV automakers. And John Murphy, who covers autos for Bank of America, is here with me now. John, welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So Lucid hasn't delivered any cars yet, correct? The last I saw, they had about 10,000 pre-orders. And, and from what I read, you know, the most expensive version that they make has a range of like 500 miles on one charge. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that's one of the key metrics is the is the miles per kilowatt hour. I think it's one of the things that Peter Rawlinson brings to the table is sort of a, a new view of how, you know, you measure efficiency and, and productivity of, of the, the battery, but also the powertrain. So that 500 mile range, um, you know, vehicle is sort of a testament to them being able to put up, um, you know, four and a half to five miles per kilowatt hour, where you have Tesla at four, at four miles per kilowatt hour and everybody else is at about three miles per kilowatt hour or less. So um, you know, that, you know, not only is it a high price vehicle, but it is a technologically advanced uh, vehicle that will bleed into the other other vehicles they offer over time. And we've seen a lot of uh, hype in the EV space, obviously. But the reason why people, yourself included, like this name is because the CEO did that work on the Tesla Model S, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, he was the chief engineer on the Model S, um, arguably through the the entire uh, the entire program. So, um, you know, as you look at these companies, they're early stage companies. So judging their success and viability. I mean, obviously, we're financially modeling these companies, but you also have to take a leap of faith and, and a view on the management team and their experience and their ability to execute. And we'll um, you know, get a good view into that as we go to see the Arizona plant uh, in about two weeks. Um, we're really looking forward to seeing how the, uh, the production ramp is really uh, working there. So obviously, you know, we can't talk about any P.E. ratios yet for this name. The valuation being what it is, is one of the reasons why people have been concerned about the stock. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor underperforming a little bit this year. Your $30 price objective uh, is sort of a 3x EV to sales ratio to put that in just some context for the rest of the space. But the real question that I'm interested in is when you look at the valuation that Tesla commands and the technology it's working on under the hood for self-driving, whether or not it comes to fruition, is Lucid, I mean, do these companies have to play in that sort of high-end computing space in order to command Tesla-like valuations? Or will they otherwise be relegated to just another EV maker, even if it's a really nice one? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be a really nice EV uh, maker, I mean, auto manufacturer over time and be very successful. 
Uh, I mean, I think the the question on the success on on AVs is, is you know, it's not really binary at the moment, and it's still a very open ended question whether Tesla really has the best uh, technology, or you know, the companies like GM that actually have vehicles running around uh, San Francisco without test drivers in them anymore. Um, are they really ahead? Um, and that may mean that Lucid could be behind on, on the AV front and would need to spend or buy uh, to catch up there. But I think the, the, the core platform of the vehicle itself is where Lucid is really going to succeed and, and really outstrip a lot of the competition um, and where they'll be really successful. On the AV side, you know, still a very open-ended question is who the winners are really going to be and what that really means over time. Sure. And it's certainly far off, like you said, and I think the points about GM are, are extremely relevant here. I guess just a final question about batteries. How are they able to deliver that kind of range on a battery similarly sized to Tesla? Why shouldn't we expect Tesla and others to eventually catch up? So there, the, there's a hyper focus on, on batteries and, you know, basically 100 kilowatt per hour uh, you know, cost going down over time and getting to you know, 50 to 75 dollars to, to break through and actually being cheaper than an ICE vehicle. Um, but ultimately, there's also the powertrain and the efficiency of, you know, how you get that electricity to the wheels um, and, and ultimately the aerodynamics of the vehicle. So that's one thing that I think Peter is very unique on is saying, hey, listen, I can use a similar size battery and have a much longer range or maybe actually have a smaller battery that's less expensive and have a similar range. And I think that the, the discussion here is going um, to morph outside of just the pure battery itself get a lot more into the efficiency of the powertrain and the aerodynamics of the vehicle to help ease the pressure on, on battery advancements. And I think that's a really key point here for Lucid that uh, people really need to understand. There's a whole lot more than just the battery at Lucid. All right, John, thanks for joining us and walking us through. We appreciate it today. Thank you, Kelly. John Murphy with Bank of America. Now, coming up, as Pfizer and Moderna monopolize attention, non-COVID-related drug innovation has quietly been humming along. We'll speak with the CEO of Verizon Therapeutics about their latest breakthroughs next. Plus, casino operators are getting crushed on fears of more government supervision in Macau. But this is just the latest industry to be hit by China's regulatory crackdown. We'll dig into what all of it means for the future of investing in the region, coming up on The Exchange. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. While COVID vaccines and therapeutics have been hogging the pharma spotlight, one drug maker has been quietly posting big gains. Horizon Therapeutics just reported a record quarter, sales surging 80% from the previous year, despite starting 21 with a supply shortage because the FDA allocated manufacturing to Operation Warp Speed for the pandemic. Its marquee thyroid eye disease drug recently began a phase four trial. Shares are up 50% this year after doubling in 2020. For more, let's welcome back Horizon Therapeutics Chairman and CEO Tim Walbert. Tim, it's good to have you. you know, Thanks, Kelly. What can power this next phase, you think, of performance 
Um, understandably, you're working on maybe turning this eye treatment into something that's more chronic than acute over time uh, with this phase four trial. Can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, as you, rec as you recognize, we had a great second quarter, strong 80% revenue growth, strong growth in EBITDA. And that was powered by the relaunch of Tepeza with 453 million in sales in the second quarter. Just based our guidance, uh, we expect over a billion one in, in sales for Tepeza in the second half of this year. So greater than 1.55 billion this year and over 3 billion in, in sales for the company. So continued financial performance uh, execution, but importantly, investors are recognizing the value in our pipeline. Uh, we have 22 programs of which eight are starting alone this year. Why, tell me what your sort of philosophy is on M&A. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if you have those kinds of discussions. Obviously, we've seen it start to pick up a little bit here. There's a lot more investor interest in the healthcare space. There has been, it's been very quiet during the pandemic, and maybe now companies are, are looking to kind of backfill their pipelines. Well, we're definitely seeing a lot more activity in the market. We started off this year with announcing a $3 billion acquisition of Viela Bio, which really bolstered our pipeline, which we'll discuss more in our R&D day on September 29th. But when you look at overall uh, BD activity, M&A activity, we, we see a lot of people looking, a lot of activities, including ours. Our focus is on bringing in more development stage medicines like we got with the Viela acquisition. But we do expect to see that continue to accelerate through the rest of this year. And what would you add in turn? You know, you have obviously another drug that focuses on gout. Um, how is the health uh, of the population looking post pandemic? And are there any is there anything that, it, you know, you guys might be working on in particular that you think will be of wide interest? Sure. Uh, certainly, Christexa, our gout medicine, had a great second quarter, 130 million in sales, up 70 percent. As we look forward, we're really excited about HZN 7734 which is a different approach to treating autoimmune diseases. We recently launched a study in lupus patients, and we're really excited with this medicine. Also, where else we can take it? What other autoimmune diseases? And we look forward to discussing that uh, in a little over a week at our September 29th R&D day, uh, where we'll talk not only about that, but our broader pipeline. And finally, I'm just curious what you would say about the administering of a lot of these drugs. You know, I've some colleagues who work in the pharmaceutical industry and are really excited about uh, the ability to maybe use pills to treat cancer and that sort of thing. Uh, is there anything you can add from your perspective? Well, anytime we can make things easier for patients, uh, that, that's going to be the most important task. If we can get pills for patients with uh, cancers and various tumor types, that would be fantastic. It really depends on the innovation driven. In the case of Tepeza, that is infused, uh, but it's every three weeks and it's, it's only for eight treatments. So if we can have treatments for chronic diseases that you can actually treat acutely, like we are with Tepeza, you know, you can still get away with biologics versus pills alone. Oh, that's a great point. Tim, thanks again for your time. It's good to check in with you. Thanks so much, Kelly. Have a great day. You too. Tim Walmart of Horizon Therapeutics. And coming up, Starbucks is on pace for its worst day and worst week since January as concerns both here and in China weigh on shares. We'll have all those details later on. But first, new data shows 80% of retailers are now dealing with supply chain disruptions into the holiday season. We'll speak with U.S. Chamber of Commerce about the challenges facing small businesses in particular and what it all means for consumers coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets are near session highs. The Dow's up 232 points right now, about two-thirds of 1%. Uh, it's trying to avoid the Nasdaq its sixth straight day of losses. That's up about half a percent right now. The S&P is up three-quarters of 1%. So here's where we stand for uh, all the major averages. And here are some of the individual movers this hour. 
Railroad stocks are higher after Canadian National said it would not improve its offer to buy Kansas City Southern. That means full steam ahead for Canadian Pacific's plan to acquire KSU, becoming the first single-line railroad linking Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. You can see CP shares of 1.5% today. Sticking with the transports, it's been a rough stretch for the airlines, which are moving lower again. United, American, and Delta all about 20 or 30% down since early June. And if you look at these declines from their recent highs, Delta has actually now turned negative uh, for the year versus their 52-week highs. Delta's down 25%. JetBlue, probably the worst of this bunch, down 33%. And like I said, with Delta, it's negative for 2021 now. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The military is defending two calls to China made by General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In the wake of the January attack on the Capitol, Milley reportedly assured his Chinese counterpart that President Trump was not planning any military action as part of a bid to stay in power. Trump says that that was an act of treason, but at the White House, a vote of confidence. The president knows General Milley. He has been chairman of the Joint Chiefs for almost eight months of his presidency. They've worked side by side through a range of international events. Uh, and the president has complete confidence in his leadership, his patriotism, and his fidelity to our Constitution. Colorado's attorney general says that a civil rights investigation into the 2019 death of Elijah McClain shows that the police department in Aurora has a pattern of racially biased policing. Minnesota Supreme Court has reversed the third-degree murder conviction of a former Minneapolis police officer Muhammad Noor. It says that the charge doesn't fit the circumstances of the case in which Noor fatally shot an Australian woman who reported a possible sexual assault behind her home. And as Tropical Storm Nicholas continues to dump rain on southwest Louisiana, here's what's becoming an all-too-familiar sight this hurricane season. Drone video there showing that the flooding left behind in Sargent, Texas, one of the towns closest to where then-Hurricane Nicholas came ashore, it is the eighth storm to hit the U.S. this year. And on the news, President Biden meets with CEOs as he tries to get businesses to require vaccinations for employees. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you so much, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, thinking of skipping the mall and heading to Main Street for your holiday shopping? We'll tell you what to expect from smaller businesses this holiday season. But first, from tutoring to tech to gaming, China is showing no signs of slowing down government scrutiny. What that means for your money and investments next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. A 45-day review of gaming in Macau kicked off yesterday, and it's just the latest in a string of Chinese crackdowns. You can really date the increased government scrutiny back to November of 2020, when Jack Ma's Ant Group's IPO was suspended. In April, things started to really ramp up this year. Beijing ordered that company to revamp its business. This summer, things grew increasingly intense. After Didi's U.S. debut in June, China regulators increased scrutiny on companies planning to go public here in the States. In late July, the government announced its double reduction policy aimed at limiting kids' time and after-school tutoring programs. That sent shares of education firms plunging. Come August, China announced plans to ban U.S. listings for data-heavy tech firms. They also limited video games to just three hours a week for children. And this week alone, the government has taken aim at electric vehicles and groups Alipay and, as previously mentioned, gambling in Macau. So where does all of this leave investors in terms of their next moves? Bridgewater's Ray Dalio told Squawk Box this morning he thinks this is the most important thing to remember. Listen. They have a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up approach, very much like a strict right. parent. So it, um, the question, the riddle that you have to have asked yourself, answered before is how does a communist party that talks about Marxist-Leninism 
and at the same time um, has such the second largest capital markets and the development of capital markets coexist? And the answer to that is that they believe that capitalism is a way of increasing the wealth and power of the country. Well, joining me to discuss all of this, John Rutledge is chief investment strategist at Safinat and a CNBC contributor. And Derek Scissors is resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the chief economist of the China Beige Book. It's great to have you both here. John, what would your advice be to investors right now who might be thinking about how much further they need to divest from China exposure? Uh, uh, dive, get rid of it is <laughs> the simple answer. Look, my old friend Ray is right in the sense that China is huge and you can't ignore it, and investors are going to have to deal with it over the next 10, 20, 50 years. But right now, they're going through a constriction, which is not like a strict parent. It's, it's more of a mugging that's going on. A year from now, Xi Jinping will be appointed the leader again, the first time anyone has broken the time rules uh, since Mao Zedong. Uh, he has seized total control. Uh, this is, uh, it's, 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 when you talk with the Chinese leader, the, the only word you hear in every paragraph of the conversation is stability. Stability means maintaining control. She needs control in order to do what he needs to do in a year. So this is going to get worse. And it's going to get, it's gone from education to gaming. And now they're controlling content on TV and content in films. So we're going to see more. Uh, what do I want to own there? Actually, nothing at the moment. But I especially don't want to own luxury goods in China, which has been a very popular theme. What are you going to own? Oh, you can own baby diapers, I guess. They certainly won't challenge you on that. But China is just a very, very hostile environment right now, uh, coming straight from Xi Jinping on down. Well, the whole luxury space is basically, I would, I would think, probably 40 percent of their sales must come from China or from Chinese buying elsewhere, if not more in many, many cases. So I'm talking about many of the big European names, some of the U.S. ones as well. So it's that's maybe a further area to explore and an interesting warning there. Derek, I wanted to ask, we've been sort of looking at this from the lens of social uh, transformation, you know, the idea to increase more children, to lower the cost of living, to make sure that society's gains are distributed fairly. Would you, though, also point to the economics as being a catalyst of some of these changes? You know, when we see them imploding skyscrapers, when we see the retail sales data coming in well shy because of COVID concerns, and there's a lot of discussion about what's going on with this property bubble. What's the connection there? Is there one? Yeah, I, I wish there was an economic rationale. Certainly Macau doesn't fit into that. If you were proceeding according to what's important economically in China, Macau wouldn't crack the top 100 issues. Hmm. So I think John's got it right. There are economic concerns, for example, that retail sales figure you just noted being being so weak. Um, but I, I think this is coming from Xi. And I think he's also right that the, the party Congress where Xi's trying to extend his rule is fall of next year, which means we have to anticipate another year of this, that, it, that it's political, that the only way you link uh, data concerns uh, with tech companies to Macau gaming is that you're attacking other members of the Communist Party, hmm. what they do with their wealth, what they do with their consumption, gathering data on them and so on. Obviously, that's not the way the Chinese are going to present it, uh, it's, but it's certainly not economic uh, in its rationale. It doesn't seem to be prudential financial regulation or anything of the sort. It looks political and it looks aimed at the rest of the party. Derek, so, you know, John kind of hinted at what other areas could be at risk here. What would you say? And I know you've also talked before, sort of jokingly, but not uh, joking about, 
you know, the consumer goods makers who are making literally diapers or baby goods and household, like that those would be maybe the safer areas here. But what would you also say is probably likely at risk, whether it's because of a crackdown on fellow Communist Party members or on, uh, you know, their style of living, what have you? Well, at the core of a lot of this is non-bank finance, meaning it could be state-owned finance, but it's not through the state banks. It's other kinds of financial organizations. The Chinese are not going to wrap up the state banking system. You know, maybe some people will get arrested, but the state banking system is safe. Everyone else can be at risk. So if we find out, hey, you know, there's a lot of money being sent over to Macau so you can gamble and you're doing it through this trust, uh, you know, a, a non-bank financial or you're speculating on IPOs through non-bank financials, or you're buying high-end consumer goods through non-bank financials, the element that links them all is financial activity on a large scale outside the state banking system. And so that's where I think there's a high risk before the party Congress next year of a crackdown. And then for investors, they have to follow like, well, who needs that money? Um, you know, are we exposed to anyone who gets a lot of their financing outside of the state banking system because those people could see their financing dry up? Very, very interesting. John, what would you add about the IPO market, the dual listings of Chinese companies in the U.S. and vice versa? There's been more noise, obviously, from Gary Gensler about wanting uh, disclosure. The Chinese don't want any rules that would seem to favor the you know, listed countries' paradigm over their own for their own companies. Well, it's, it's nuts not to have audited financials for a company that you have in your financial markets. I mean, he's absolutely right about that. Uh, the, the risk uh, we were talking about that maybe Derek was referring to is the Winter Olympics are, are coming up. But uh, China has structural problems that have been there for a long time. In China, there are not enough banking system to feed the economy. China, therefore, for many years did too many small IPOs. So there's lots of little public companies in China. In China, the banks often accept shares of public companies as collateral for loans. So when the stock market goes, you also can kill the working capital market with it. The non-bank finance Derek's talking about is all of the working capital for the private small and medium-sized companies. That's where the risk is, and that's where the slowdown is happening in China right now. So I think that we're going to see uh, China's growth is, uh, is definitely weakened. This is all going to come to a head when the Winter Olympics uh, happen and people and we decide whether which countries want to go or not go. I think there are going to be some bad surprises there for people. And, um, uh, and between uh, between now and then, uh, stand by for more rams from Mr. Xi. You know, the one thing and I don't want to talk too long about this, Kelly, but across the street from the Great Hall of the People, there's a compound. The hundred top leaders in China live together in that compound. During the days of Hu Jintao, nobody would make an announcement that hadn't gone around the compound and been consensus agreed. That's no longer true. She has taken power from those other leaders. And uh, there are people that he's hurting, as Derek says, and some of them are people who make money in all these different ways. So yeah. spicy it, time in China. If there's anything I'm thinking, listening to this discussion, uh, Derek, I just want to give you a quick word to respond on this. It's that how can China remain prosperous while draining all of this financial support? Well, I, I think, you know, we, we, we shouldn't confuse the medium term, which is the next year or so, and, and there's a lot of risk in the medium term, with the long term. I think in Xi Jinping's head, this crackdown is not for the next 25 years. It's to make sure he's in charge next year, extends his time, and then he'll pick 
what he thinks is important to, to ease up on, and tech would be the obvious choice there because tech is so important to China's development. So there's a bad year coming up, but I don't think she uh, thinks that this is a permanent change where finance um, and these various sectors of the economy are going to be repressed indefinitely. Very, very interesting. Thank you both uh, for this discussion today. Derek Scissors and John Rutledge on what could be coming next in China. And we want to take a quick look at our markets. Before we go, we are heading to fresh session highs. Dow's of 263 points. NASDAQ trying to break, I think, a six, five or six-day losing streak. Coming up, pain on Main Street. The pandemic continues to weigh on small business owners. We'll dig into the latest data next. And before we head to break, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. All month long, we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own employees. Here's Norwegian Cruise Line's president and CEO, Frank Del Rio. Census just came out. We make up 20% of the U.S. population. That means Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Argentinians. We are the melting pot of the United States. And we've been so successful and we're going to continue being successful because we have ambition. We want to succeed. We believe in education and we believe in hard work. I came to this country as a six-year-old Cuban refugee in 1961. And those were my secrets to success. And they can be yours as well. Welcome back, everybody. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce releasing its small business report for the third quarter, highlighting a ton of the challenges facing Main Street right now. It's all the usual suspects, supply chain disruptions, hiring issues, inflation. Joining me now is Neil Bradley. He's the executive vice president and chief policy officer for the U.S. Chamber. Neil, it's good to have you. And I mean, this we didn't even state the obvious, which is there was a pandemic that saw the sort of big guys, especially retailers, gain probably huge market share at the expense of smaller ones, restaurants, retailers, you name it. Yes, there was a lot of small business aid, but how much has the landscape changed in the past 18 months? Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. It's changed quite a bit. Let's start with some good news. Uh, 55% of small businesses in our most recent uh, survey, this quarterly survey done in conjunction with Matt Live, uh, report that their business conditions are good. Uh, Two-thirds have confidence in their revenue, and 58% think their revenue is going to grow over the next year. Those are new highs since the beginning of the pandemic. So in many ways, we've recovered, but optimism is beginning to slow, and uh, that's what worries us the most. And frankly, all of those issues you just identified, workforce, supply chain, Inflation are all beginning to erode the confidence that small businesses have in the future. How are they dealing with labor market uh, constraints, whether it's trying to find people, the cost of hiring? What's the, what are the biggest problems and how are they going to be resolved? Yeah, so 50 percent in the most recent survey report they're having difficulty filling their open jobs. And so uh, in some cases, they're actually pulling back hours and pulling back work that they would otherwise do. So when we talk to retailers and restaurant operators, uh, they're not fully reopened. Uh, They're either closing a a lunch service or a dinner service. Uh, They're turning down jobs if they're in the construction industry simply because they don't have the workers to meet the needs that consumers have. So that's incredibly difficult for them. When it comes to supply chain, small employers don't have a lot of options. They're simply struggling through with what the supply chain can provide. And so that's actually one of the bigger difficulties, even worse today than hiring for many businesses on Main Street. We haven't talked about PPP in a while. What would your postmortem be on the whole program? Well, for a brand new program that was an experiment that had never been tried before, I think you have to give it an unqualified success. Of course, there were bumps in the road. 
but compare the PPP program to, say, the aid going to individuals to help with uh, back rent payments. That money hasn't been able to get out the door. The government has struggled to get it through state and local governments. And it's been, by all accounts, uh, pretty much a disaster. Compare that with PPP, where we rescued millions of businesses literally on a dime because we bought the private sector into it. And so it's not just a government effort when it comes to PPP. It was what banks and uh, 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 local community uh, lending institutions did to help get that money in the hands of, of, of businesses on Main Street. So I guess my, my final question would be, if we've moved past the need for acute help uh, in the pandemic, but we still have a lot of uh, pandemic effects of Delta still going around, there's mask issues, there's vaccination issues, again, finding workers, figuring out how to stay open, how to make that transition to virtual, whether that means on the, you know, showing up to work or not, what would be the best way to support a vibrant, small, you know, new business startup community, small business community in the U.S. from here? Well, first and foremost, it's exactly what you said. We have to beat COVID. More vaccinations means a quicker end to this pandemic. So the more people we can get vaccinated, the more we can be fully reopened. We need the federal government to help in some areas, uh, helping unlock some of the supply chain disruptions, dealing with some of these bottlenecks in ways that they can help do. We also need support when it comes to uh, our workforce. That means getting people off the sidelines back into, into the job market with job training programs. It also means increases in legal immigration, and only our government can help effectuate that. At the same time, it's critical that they don't do any harm. This $3.5 trillion plus tax and spending package is only going to make the inflationary pressures faced on Main Street multiple times worse. So when we think about uh, you know the old adage to the physicians, first do no harm. First, they can do no harm when it comes to this reconciliation package. And then the second thing, begin unlocking some of these bottlenecks when it comes to the workforce and supply chain. Yeah, well, that is a, a hornet's nest of political problems to deal with there. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for joining me to talk about it today. Thanks so much for having Neil Bradley with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Now, still ahead, muni bonds are typically viewed as a relatively safe, tax-free investment, but there's a very specific risk emerging in the market, according to one fixed income strategist. He'll join me to explain next. And remember, you can catch this program anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Wildfires in the West, widespread hurricane damage, and extreme flooding are all putting climate change center stage for a lot of investors these days. Not even the muni bond market is immune to the effects of extreme weather. So what exactly should investors be watching for now? Joining me is Jamie Island. He's Newberger Berman's head of municipal fixed income. Jamie, this is a, a bit of a warning in a sense that, you know, there will be bigger fallout from municipalities to these storms, you know, Rahel was just showing us in the last news update, there are parts of the country that are just getting drenched and hit by these storms time and again. Uh, how is that affecting their financial stability? Look, Kelly, it's, first of all, it's always great to uh, see you. And look, these risks are elevated. Uh, they're getting bigger day by day. You pointed out all the storms that have taken place, um, you know, the hurricanes, the fires on the West Coast. Look, I think this municipal bond market is not a do-it-yourself market. You really need uh, professional management. You need to go into the bond market and look at issuers one by one and look at the vulnerability that they have to these climate risks, but also what money are they going to have to spend to defend against them? Because when they spend more money, leverage goes up and that can weaken the credit. So. We really think this is a market that you have to assess bond by bond in order to deliver preservation of capital to clients. 
so there are some obvious recommendations here, like don't put your entire portfolio in coastal communities. But what are some of the more subtle things you'd point out? Sure. I think a lot of times bigger can be better, Kelly. So, you know, look at larger cities, cities with huge economies, even if they get hit by one of these natural disasters or storms, it's incredibly likely that people are going to return because there's a lot to return to. And city of Houston is a great example of that. They got walloped by Hurricane Harvey a couple of years ago. But this is one of the largest cities in America, and people came back and they got lots of federal aid, which helped in the rebuilding. I think one of the things that investors can do to insulate portfolios is put some of the state credits in your portfolio. A storm can hit a part of a state. It's very unlikely that a storm would wipe out an entire state's economy. So putting in state-level credit is a good way to preserve portfolios. Yeah, and you also say that, broadly speaking, these risks are not properly priced in the muni bond market. You know, last week we were talking about the flood of capital into the space because, as our analysts put it, investors simply have too much cash on the sidelines. Yes, there's a bit of a tax concern as well. So this flood of capital is not pricing these risks properly. I don't know if you want to speak on the record about where you think some of the biggest dislocations are, but aside from your advice to go big, where, what else do you think people should keep in mind? Yeah, look, I think the muni market has been slow to recognize these risks, and we see a lot of deals where we locate some serious climate risk to the credit, yet it's not in the price. What I would advise investors to do, here's the, here's the good news. The muni market has over 50,000 different issuers. If you see these problems and you're not being compensated for them, you can move on and look at a different investment. I think that's the best advice. Be selective right now. You don't have to be too aggressive on taking on these risks. Yeah. Jamie, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Jamie Islin with Newberger Berman. Still ahead, Starbucks employees in upstate New York could soon be voting on whether to unionize. The details and the company's response are next. A unionization effort led by Starbucks employees in three stores in Buffalo, New York, is now becoming a citywide issue. Kate Rogers is here with the latest on that story and its implications for Starbucks. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, workers at three Starbucks stores in Buffalo, New York, petitioned for a vote on whether to unionize late last month. Now the company has told the National Labor Relations Board that all 450 of its workers in the city should be allowed to vote, according to a memo that Starbucks sent to its employees that was obtained by CNBC. This would take that vote, Kelly, from three stores to 20. The letter to the Buffalo workers also said that the company was taking action to bring store operations back up to its standards, including bringing in help with staffing and repairing store issues more quickly. Ask us anything. We're all here to help you. You have the right to work directly with Starbucks, and if you don't want to give up that right, you should vote no, the letter said. Now, in response to this, Starbucks Workers United said, quote, Starbucks is trying to delay our vote using any legal tactics they can. NLRB precedent is that a single store is an appropriate unit. We are trying to organize even one store and win the right to organize at this company. We've also learned that Starbucks executives Howard Schultz, the company's former CEO, and Rossanne Williams, the executive vice president of Starbucks North America, have recently both been conducting store visits to hold listening sessions with employees in Buffalo. Kelly, back over to you. But Kate, they must be, I mean, no, not that any company wants its employees to unionize, but Starbucks so puts them first that I can't imagine they would not ultimately have to support this? Wouldn't it be hypocritical of them not to? Well, they're saying we're not anti-union. We are pro-partner. That's why executives are here to listen. We want to let them know basically that, you know, if they want to continue to work well with the company, that 
The open dialogue is between uh, U.S. partners and us as Starbucks. Come to us. We're here to work with you. So we'll have to see what happens. September 22nd, we should find out who's able to actually participate in that union vote, Kelly. It's like change from within. Uh, no schisms. Okay, understood. But also weighing on the shares today, Kate, is this issue about Yum China. And what, what did it say in particular about its profit warning? And what's the read through to Starbucks there? Yeah, so obviously Starbucks China is its second home market. Very important there. Yum China did warn that the Delta variant was going to take its Q3 profit down between 50 and 60 percent. It impacted about 500 of its stores in China there. So that's weighing on Starbucks shares today. You can see they're they're definitely lower and on pace for about their uh, lowest uh, close should be in about eight months today. So we'll have to see how the uh, day shakes out. But clearly investors are a little bit concerned about what Delta means for companies that have a huge footprint there in China. And finally, Kate, have you heard anything from the company at Itself. Not that I would expect to, but they're in a pretty awkward position uh, as China continues to crack down on a lot of its different industries. Not that Starbucks has anything to do necessarily with running afoul of what China's concerned about, but they're probably one of the biggest U.S. businesses with uh, operations there. Yeah, about 5,100 stores there for Starbucks in China. They have a really good uh, working relationship uh, with the Chinese government there and, and continue to expand. So we haven't heard anything from them on that. But clearly investors, as mentioned, a little bit concerned about Yum, Yum China's profit warning today, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers on all things Starbucks. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.